and welcome to The Global Insight. On this edition, we're going to be talking about middle powers. We'll unpack what that concept means, what sort of powers we're talking about, and why we think it's a significant issue to be discussing at this juncture. I'm joined on the podcast today by two of my colleagues from the Global Risk Analysis Department here at Control Risks, our Associate Director, Patricia Rodriguez. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you for having me. And I'm also joined by our Senior Analyst, Gabriel Brazil, who's also based in our London office. Hello, Gabriel. Hi, Claudine. Hi, Patricia. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. Excellent to have you. So now, Patricia, I should explain, is an expert on Africa. And Gabriel has an expertise that has brought him from our Brazil team our, in Latin America. Uh, Gabriel used to be our, our Brazil lead expert and is now actually in our global issues team and takes a global view of geopolitics and other issues that we track for clients. He has a particular interest in ESG and energy transition. But the reason that they're both on the podcast today is because we want to talk about middle powers and we will unpack what the concept means in different parts of the world. So drawing on Patricia and Gabriel's particular areas of expertise, we will, of course, touch on, therefore, both Africa and Latin America, as well as the global view. There may be people listening who don't know what we're actually talking about. So I guess we better start by explaining what we mean by middle powers. It's a term that I've seen increasingly over the past year or so in reporting and analysis about the geopolitical environment and how it's evolving. And Certainly for me, my understanding is that middle powers are countries which are significant because of their strategic role that they play, because of the strategic role that they play, because of the natural resources that they have at their disposal, because of perhaps historic links to other countries, perhaps demographics. There are all sorts of reasons why different countries might have a claim to be a middle power. And it's a way of talking about a world which is multipolar and I think not one that is all about the US and China alone. But it has surprised me actually, as we've been talking about this concept a lot internally here at Control Risk over the past few weeks, I've actually been surprised by how many different opinions have surfaced on the concept, the words middle powers and on lots of heated debate about which countries we might include in this category. So I'm interested in what Patricia and Gabriel think. Patricia, I'll come to you first. What does the concept mean to you? And well, does it indeed have any value from your perspective? It's a really challenging one for me to get kind of get my head around because middle powers tends to be equated with essentially the BRICS countries, so Brazil, Russia, India, and South Africa. But I think when whenever we're talking about middle powers, it's probably pertinent to kind of expand that range of countries. It's not just about, you know, economic clout, which is what um, a lot of these BRICS countries in particular have. It's also, like you said, about strategic positioning and about access to resources. So if I think about the African continent, for example, um, one that has been gaining a lot of attention quite recently is Congo, the DRC. And that's because it has the largest uh, amount of cobalt, which is a very important mineral for the energy transition. And so suddenly DRC finds itself at the center of a lot of kind of geopolitical conversations because its minerals are going to be vital for the energy transition. On the other hand, you have to think about regional powerhouses. So on the African continent, I think of Egypt, I think of Kenya and also of uh, uh, South Africa. And that's because these are essentially, I would call them anchor economies. 
for their respective subregions within the African continent. But more importantly, they are increasingly positioning themselves to speak for the African continent in global affairs. So Kenya is a really good example because there's been everyone from you know, U.S., senior U.S. officials, and more recently, even the president of Iran has just gone through Kenya to, to have a visit to discuss trade ties. So the messy answer, Claudine, is that I think it is a messy concept. We don't have a proper kind of definition for it. But I guess I would say it's countries that are becoming more relevant on the, on the global stage, either because of their resources or because of where they are situated within a specific continent, Africa, for example. That's really interesting, Patricia. And I really align with your thinking around using the opportunity to think about a broad range of countries when we think about what we're talking about with respect to middle powers. And 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 also I share your sense that thinking about the countries which want to have a voice on global issues or issues which are regionally relevant even, wanting to have a voice, wanting to be heard, wanting to take a place at the table to negotiate on, you know, issues of macro significance, whether it's climate change or perhaps how the conflict in Ukraine is going to be resolved. And we've seen, of course, lots of African countries looking to play a role there. And also Brazil, turning to you, Gabriel, We've seen Brazil really asserting itself on the diplomatic stage over the past few months, particularly with respect to Ukraine, but on other issues as well. Give us your perspective on on, on middle powers. What does it mean to you? I think I agree with you both, uh, particularly when Patricia says uh, can be related to regional and topic-specific issues. Uh, there's no, as far as I'm concerned, there's no academic consensus around the term. But for me, it means... Uh, countries that uh, have a moderate capacity to influence geopolitics. And that comes on the back of uh, specific events or specific uh, geopolitical developments that might pose an opportunity for those countries to play a prominent role. In the case of Brazil, for example, we have the climate agenda as an obvious opportunity. Brazil has, obviously, in addition to the Amazon, very interesting uh, clean energy credentials and a very um, ambition uh, agenda in terms of uh, leading uh, green uh, plans uh, for the coming decade. And I think you're right. In the past uh, few months, the country has recovered its self-esteem on the back of the inauguration of Pres President Lula in January. Foreign policy means a lot to him. It meant a lot uh, during his first uh, two terms in the past. And I think we'll probably see four years of uh, Brazil trying to find its way in the middle of this fragmented geopolitical scenario. There are a couple of successful and others more controversial uh, attempts. I think on the success side of things, again, I think the environmental front uh, provided that Brazil uh, manages to address its domestic challenges, particularly around deforestation. I think uh, the country has a good chance of positioning itself as a, as a global leader uh, for climate issues. But then there are some issues, for example, Lula has been trying to uh, become a mediator in the, the context of the war in Ukraine, which is a bit uh, controversial because first, it's too far from Brazil. Both the uh, geographic and economic and cultural connection is very limited. And second, because 
in order to do so, uh, Lula has adopted this overly neutral stance, uh, which many people perceive as actually siding with Russia, uh, given I know what neutrality means uh, in this context. I think Brazil will see what works and what doesn't. But Brazil is definitely a very good example of a middle power, you, you know, uh, those countries that strike this balancing act between, uh, you know, there is China, there is uh, the US and a lot of opportunities in the middle. And I think because of its peace-based diplomat diplomatic story and the fact that, you know, Brazil is very neutral in many ways, I think the country has good communication channels with Beijing and Washington, obviously, but also Caracas and, you, you know, from a, a more global perspective, other countries in Europe. Now it's leading on the negotiations for the European Union and Mercosur agreement as well. So I do see uh, many opportunities for Brazil and some challenges around how the country is going to benefit from them. But again, a very good example of a middle power for sure. You touch on neutrality there, Gabriel, which I think is a really, really interesting and actually quite contentious area. Ukraine has been the perfect test of where states sit in the geopolitical order. I'd actually argue that neutrality is not a defining feature of what we're talking about on middle powers, because what I feel that many of these countries have in common is a determination to assert their own position and to choose, perhaps opportunistically or on case by case, when they're going to align with other countries on a particular issue and when they're not. But, but I don't think it's from a position of neutrality overall. Yeah, I fully agree. And I would replace neutrality by pragmatism. Mm -hmm. I think this is probably the key feature when we look at the foreign policy of countries like Turkey, Brazil, South Korea, India, South Africa, maybe. Uh, you know, they, they, they have the, the own niches, certain set of opportunities and domestic challenges that they can try to solve with resources from the international arena. And they just play around with those building blocks according to their convenience, the risk appetite, and obviously ongoing trends. I think that's how I would put that. Yeah. Patricia, taking, taking an assertive stance can be risky, can't it? We've seen South Africa see its relationship with the US come under some strain over the past few weeks with respect to how Washington perceives the way that South Africa is extending support or not to Russia, to Putin. Lots of controversy about whether and how it's going to host Putin at the forthcoming BRICS event in, in Johannesburg that I think is taking place in August. There's concern about the possibility of sanctions being imposed and, and so on. Talk us through what South Africa's sort of game plan is there, Patricia. It's, it seems to be prepared to risk its relationship <laughs> with the US. Why? What, what, what's going on there? I wish I wish I could say there was an actual game plan behind all of this. I think with South Africa, we need to understand two main things. One is, you know, around that that pragmatism or I guess, you know, attempt at neutrality at least is actually quite um how do I put this? It's it's quite a kind of African stance, not uniformly across the continent, of course. But a lot of African countries have taken similar positions to South Africa in that nobody's taking sides in Russia, Ukraine. This is not, uh, you know, on their part, they just don't want to be perceived as siding with one side or the other. But like Gabriella said, it's not, it's not neutrality, it's more pragmatism, because 
you know, in Africa, we have trade relationships with everyone, right? And we, we need to maintain those overall. So it's not in anyone's favor to side with one over the other on geopolitical issues, including Russia, Ukraine. I think South Africa is a very interesting case with respect to Russia. And that's because there's a lot of historical connection. So with the ruling party in, in, in South Africa, the ANC, has quite close connections to Russia. And this stems from, you know, during the apartheid times. And there's still some lingering resentment of people like the US who worked quite closely with the apartheid government. So there is some historical context to that, which is preventing, I guess, an overly pro-US stance, for example, on Russia-Ukraine. But all of this has come to a head, as you've said, with respect to the BRICS summit and whether or not Putin will attend, because South Africa, under its agreement or obligations under the Rome Statute, would be required to arrest Putin were he to attend the BRICS summit under their obligations to the ICC. They are trying to figure out a way around this, potentially including, you know, Putin not attending in person, for example, or perhaps suspending elements of the Rome statute while the, the, the summit is taking place. Uh, ultimately, it is a massive headache for South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, and he is trying his hardest to kind of please both sides. But you're right, it has precipitated some period of pretty strange relationships between South Africa and the U.S. And in fact, the U.S. Congress is really pushing, or there are certain members of Congress who are, are pushing for South Africa to be removed from the Africa Growth and Opportunities Act, AGOA, which provides African countries with preferential access to U.S. markets. So there's talk that this perceived coziness with Russia on South Africa's part will lead to South Africa's suspension from AGOA um, as an easy kind of way for the U.S. to potentially penalize somebody or an entity that is not siding with them on the conflict in, in Ukraine. So there is this downside. And honestly, if you're looking at the economics purely, it does not really make sense for South Africa to be siding with Russia because trade ties are negligible. So there is, like I said, this historical aspect that we need to consider when you're thinking through you know, why the ANC and why Ramaphosa are thinking in this way towards Russia, when economically the U.S. is still one of its largest trade partners, why would you want to potentially damage that relationship? But yeah, it stems from those two things, the, the historical aspect of it. And as we've been saying, this attempt to, uh, I guess, take a more authoritative stance on global issues you know you're not necessarily seeing the old school way of saying when the u.s says jump we say how high that's not necessarily going to fly anymore across the african continent and i think south africa is potentially one of those countries that is demonstrating that with its actions as well i imagine businesses in south africa or thinking about investments in South Africa are having to, to factor in this geopolitical angle into their planning and, and, and clearly an understanding of the sort of historic, emotional, cultural, social angles to, the, to these issues is, is, is really important. What, what do you think the business implications are? You've talked about the situation in South Africa there, Patricia, and I know sanctions has been, is on the mind of, of some companies that are operating in South Africa as a consequence of what's been going on geopolitically. But give us a bit of a sense 
of the business implications of the way that states are maneuvering as middle powers. I think probably in the area of critical minerals is one one really tangible example of how being a middle power or recognizing you have a particular status because of your critical minerals. Clearly on that South Africa question, there's a real need to be understanding the cultural, social, historic, perhaps emotional drivers behind a way that a country is choosing to direct its foreign policy and, and its strategic engagement on issues outside its territory. There's obviously a blowback consequence in terms of trade relationships, maybe even sanctions. What sort of issues should companies be thinking about when they're thinking about what the tangible implications of middle power maneuvering is in particular markets? Increased geopolitical action by middle powers comes with increased complexity. Um, I mean, polarized world can be dangerous, but it's probably easier to understand. When we have middle powers, uh, you know, trying to influential. We have a different set of interests to understand and navigate, and sometimes they're inconsistent. I, I think it's important to, to know that middle powers are not a block. They're not coherent. They have different cultural priorities, economic landscapes, and uh, obviously geopolitical interests as well. So companies need uh, to factor this additional complexity to the international run. I think from a more practical perspective, this comes with probably two main business risks. One on the regulatory front, we mentioned before critical minerals in the context of the energy transition. Uh, we've seen in the past few months, uh, quite a few initiatives by uh, countries and blocks trying to you know, improve their self-sufficiency credentials for you know, the sourcing of those minerals, and that implies implementation of export controls and the creation of alliances and, and so on. That's something that definitely might impact companies uh, in, in, the, in sectors such as mining and energy and all the supply chain for batteries and tech and so on. The second would be integrity risk. I think when we have, for example, a conflict like the war in Ukraine, companies might be caught in the middle if they are perceived to be associated with a state that is adopting a a geopolitical stance that's not aligned to what uh, the domestic public is expecting. And, and I think in the case of multinationals, this is even more complicated. So from a, a risk manager, management perspective, uh, it's really important for business to understand what are the stakes, uh, the interests, what's outlook uh, for the variables that sometimes might be conflicting among each other. Scenario planning helps a lot. This is a volatile environment, I think. The, the presence of middle powers in the context of geopolitical action means that many things can happen overnight. So having proposed scenarios developed really help our business navigate those risks. 100% agree with what Gabrielle is saying. I think the only, I guess, element I would add on top of that is the, the reputational side of things. So if you think of, you know, big companies operating in Africa, if you're in the mining sector, for example, suddenly there's a lot more scrutiny on, on how these, in particular, critical minerals are being sourced. Um, there's a lot more attention being paid to the entire supply chain. So there is that extra layer of people looking into how you operate along the entire supply chain. And then for other kind of, I guess, less extractive sector companies, you find yourself in this position where if, for example, you're reliant on one subset of investors, Western investors in particular, 
and you're in potentially a country like South Africa or other other African countries that are perhaps less less inclined to align with the US, then you find yourself under pressure from domestic audiences for your operations overseas. Or potentially in the case of big African companies or multinationals with their largest operations in the continent, find yourself having to explain a foreign policy decision by a government which has nothing to do with you as an investor or a company. So in the case of South Africa, we've seen a lot of anxiety about you know, a foreign policy decision by the government resulting in potential sanctions or potential removal of access to US markets. Again, that has nothing to do with you. Uh, and But now you're in this kind of environment where you have to adapt to that and manage your own sort of reputation with your own set of investors and not necessarily to distance yourself with government policy but in some ways it does amount to saying we don't agree necessarily with what you know your own government is saying so i think it's becoming essentially more awkward to manage a, a lot of like your your reputational considerations when you're operating in this multipolar world Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. We've been talking for a long time about how companies are going to have to rethink their tech footprint, their digital footprint, for example, to account for the fact that there might be at least two very different environments that they have to be fully sort of resilient and operationally active in. But actually, it might be even more complicated than that. The places where you can access your tech and use that tech might change because of the different allegiances that different countries have where you're operating in. So your footprint is going to be very fragmented. I think I just want to be the person to say that there's also opportunities in terms of business implications. For example, if your business plan is aligned to that middle power foreign policy ambition, you can benefit from subsidies or a better, more predictable regulatory environment. I think navigating uh, the complexity of the current geopolitical environment means obviously mitigating risks, but also spotting opportunities. When we look at set- sectors like mining is probably the, the most obvious one with all the critical minerals rush, but also semiconductors, you mentioned tech. There are a number of incentives in place by governments because governments see those areas as areas that they can use to leverage their foreign policy ambitions. And, and if companies manage to capture that, you know, in a constructive way, and that can be a big thing as well. And can be a long-term game. I think Patricia mentioned before that there is no clear gameplay sometimes. There are many ADOC things going on. Uh, but when you look at certain sectors, mining, for example, again, it's a long-term project. So benefits can be real and, and significant for a company uh, yeah. who wants to, you know, explore a mine for 20 years and so on. That's right. And in fact, a lot of the solutions, a lot of the sort of really exciting development that we're seeing in renewables, a lot of the innovation that we need to be able to adapt to climate change, the investment that's going to be taking place in that is coming from and going into middle powers. I mean, we are also talking about, you know, 
parts of the Middle East, for example, which are really hefty investors into renewables and into a whole multitude of sectors globally and playing a hugely influential role. We are actually going to focus on on the Middle East in 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 the next edition of the Global Insight podcast specifically. But I think, yeah, we are we are talking about states which are significant investors and sources of wealth globally as well. So both of you, I've got a question for you. What do you think the geopolitical environment will be like in 10 years time? How will you, how will you be characterizing it if you are advising clients on geopolitics at that time? And um, what states will you, would you each identify as the ones to watch? There's probably, I guess, three megatrends, me sitting, looking at sub-Saharan Africa that I'm, I'm conscious of. One is the, the critical mineral slash energy transition, that movement, I guess, because of the sheer amount of like critical minerals that will power the energy transition that are located within Africa. So I think that's, that's number one. Number two is the demographics with a lot of aging populations and I guess the global north, uh, sub-Saharan Africa is still one of the, the areas in this world where median ages are still quite, quite young. And, and in terms of kind of the demographics, I think there is a potential dividend for African countries to, to realize in, in the coming years. The third thing is, is around the geopolitical fragmentation that we're talking about, because in that there are opportunities for Africa to emerge as a destination for nearshoring, especially for European markets, which geographically are a lot closer than trying to, for example, move production facilities to Latin America. Um, so there is opportunity there for African countries to fill this this gap, especially as people are moving away from manufacturing in places like China, for example. So with those kind of three things in mind, what does this look like for Africa in the next decade? One is a potential for more economic prosperity in terms of the way that renewable energy and the energy transition takes shape in, in the African continent. Secondly is potential for more employment. As I mentioned, the demographic side of things feeds in not only to the manufacturing and nearshoring element, but also in terms of kind of healthcare workers and education workers that the global north is, is increasingly going to need, especially as an aging population and not a very high birth rates and in some of these locations will necessitate, necessitate a movement of labor uh, from places like Africa. So there is this kind of prosperity uh, angle to it. And with prosperity comes potentially larger voice in geopolitical affairs. Um, so there, there is kind of that hopeful and potential upside uh, to all of this fragmentation for a lot of the, the African countries. But to answer more directly the question, which ones, which states would be interesting to watch? I think we can't say anything about energy transition without talking about DRC. And it's just sheer volume of minerals and what it can potentially do with that wealth and say about a lot of things with regards to the energy transition because of that mineral wealth. Then the other two I would kind of keep an eye on from the demographics perspective are, are Nigeria, Ethiopia, which are the largest population-wise, 200 and over 100 million. So there's potential there, just on the sheer size of a potential labor pool 
for them to get more voices in, in global affairs. And then I will unfortunately be very uh, traditional in the other kind of African countries to look at those regional economic champions, I, I suppose I mentioned in the beginning. So Nigeria, Egypt, Kenya, and South Africa, and each of the, the poles of the continent, I think will be the ones definitely to watch in terms of having a, a prominent voice in global affairs. So for the coming decade, I, I definitely expect volatility to remain a key feature of the geopolitical environment. There are many reasons for that, obviously important ongoing conflict and depolarization between the US and China, but climate change really being a threat multiplier and impacting how states position themselves, both politically and economically. There will be many trade-offs from a political perspective, and that will bring anxiety and frictions. And I think there's this, this term, the polycrisis, number of simultaneous crises that compound each other. I think climate change is the model of all those crises. It will be a threat multiplier for everything from economic inequality, mass migration, new pandemics, civil unrest, political instability, and so on. So I do expect the world to face a highly challenging situation in the coming decade on the back of the massive challenge associated with climate change. In terms of I states towards South Korea with the interest in soft power and semiconductor sector, India, which has an interesting approach to space infrastructure, and again, a, a very important role to play in the context of climate change. Uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, you, you know, a uh, very important power broker uh, within OPEC, which will obviously be very important in the context of the energy transition. And then Brazil, again, on the back of its capacity to, to lead uh, green agendas. And if we still in Latin America, there is Chile, which is a massive producer of lithium and is also uh, kind of modernizing the central left uh, in Latin America. So uh, I think there's some thematic and regional state drivers for some states to be uh, particularly important in the coming decade. But I do feel strongly that climate change will probably be behind most major trends, geopolitically speaking, in the coming years. And I wonder if ultimately that will reinforce, to a degree, the status quo geopolitically, because some of the countries that are going to be most impacted are the ones which are least able to cope. Yeah, I'd say that, unfortunately, because of how climate change will be, will have uneven impacts to probably reinforce inequality, both across countries and within countries. So yeah, that's definitely something that will impact the geopolitical environment, even if the impact is maintaining the status quo. But again, there will be opportunities and some niche stuff. If you think about green hydrogen, for example, which is a, a clean energy technology that can be really important for the energy transition. It's something new. It's up for grabs if countries can explore that. So it is possible that it will also generate the opportunity for emerging states to benefit and, and to influence the geopolitical environment, even if not changing the status quo, but adding some different features to that in the coming decade. It's really thought provoking. And I, you know, just to mention some of the, the regions that aren't represented in our discussion, discussion today, I know that we're also thinking about the roles that Indonesia and India will play in Asia, for example. We have we have mentioned Turkey. That's a hugely significant one. The Middle East, Saudi Arabia, to name to name but one. I can't help but think we are moving into a period which is dangerous just because there isn't that sort of global police person 
and the weakness of institutions which have done something, I think, to have some order and consistency to global affairs, sort of, you know, broadly since since the end of the Second World War. Institutions, the UN included, WHO, IMF, WTO. One of the consequences, I think, of this geopolitical fragmentation is the weakness of these these institutions and the ability of them or any one particular country to be a stabilizing force. So I think it's a dangerous time. But Patricia, I'm going to sort of cling to the little bit of optimism that you you were you were speaking to there. And I wonder if at, at some point, and I don't think it'll be in the next 10 years, but at some point there is a sort of alignment around another set of values that a majority of states do align behind to establish a new version of, of the world order that took shape last century to find a way of navigating climate change, impact, adaptation, digitalization, and so on in a way that is ultimately about stabilizing the world. Patricia, thank you so much for joining on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This was a fascinating discussion. Gabriel, you too. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. If you liked what you heard on this episode of The Global Insight, make sure to subscribe. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts as well, like Decrypt, featuring our experts from across the world making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. As always, thanks for listening.